Hey everybody, Eric Grenier here, and welcome to the 16th episode of The Grit Podcast. In a few minutes, I'm going to be joined by Dave Cornoyer to chat about Monday's municipal Senate and referendum votes in Alberta. But first, let's get straight to the election headlines. Starting with the ongoing, unending saga of the Green Party leadership. Remember when Annamie Paul announced she was resigning as leader of the party? Well, it hasn't happened yet, according to a recent report by the CBC. Two things are holding it up. The first is that Paul is negotiating compensation for legal fees she incurred when she was fighting the party's own moves to oust her as leader. The second is the legal dispute between Paul and the Greens, where an arbitrator had found in favor of Paul, but the Greens challenged that finding. According to the CBC report, the Greens were in the red by about $100,000 in both May and June, and also had legal expenses of about $100,000 trying to displace their own leader. So things continue to be pretty complicated for the Greens, and it looks like it will be a little while yet before they can try to move on from this disastrous year. Next, judicial recounts in Trois-Rivières and Bromissisque confirm the preliminary results, giving the Bloc the win in Trois-Rivières and the Liberals the win in Bromissisque. The recount in Bromissisque was halted after the Bloc conceded. As I'm recording this, a recount in Davenport, a riding in Toronto, is still in progress. If the Liberal win there is also confirmed, the new Parliament will have 159 Liberals, 119 Conservatives, 32 Bloc MPs, 25 New Democrats, 2 Greens, and 1 Independent. In Nova Scotia, Tim Houston's new PC government has introduced a bill to give Nova Scotia fixed election dates. It was the last province not to have them. The Houston government has set the next election for July 15, 2025. Future elections will take place on the third Tuesday of July every four years. The Nova Scotia NDP criticized the choice of putting the fixed date in the middle of the summer. It is actually an unusual decision, as all other provinces have their fixed dates in the fall, as most do, or the spring. All right, on Monday, Albertans will be heading to the polls to cast ballots on a number of questions. Most important are the municipal elections taking place across the province, including in the two biggest cities of Calgary and Edmonton. But Albertans are also voting in the Senate nominee elections. Yes, Alberta votes for its senators, though the Prime Minister is under no obligation to actually appoint the winners. They are also voting in two referendums, one to end daylight savings time and the other on equalization. To help make sense of it, I'm joined today by Dave Cornoyer, who writes at DaveBerta.ca and is the host of the Dave Berta podcast. Hey, Dave, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, thanks for thanks for having me on, Eric. I'm I'm excited to talk about municipal the the dog's breakfast that is the municipal election in Alberta. Well, it's been a lot of voting going on in your province over the last oh you know a month or so with the federal election and now the municipal election. How would you rate the attention levels of Albertans for these two campaigns? You know, it's uh, I think the it's kind of funny because even though there was a federal election and a provincial election this year, I mean, a lot of people are really paying attention to what's going on provincially because of the the fourth wave of COVID and the um, the the plummeting approval ratings of Jason Kenney and the kind of uh, uh, the politics around the United Conservative Party and 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 whatnot. So, you know, we had a federal election where which was actually in a couple seats in Alberta ended up being actually competitive, um, which is not you know not always the case here in Alberta where. We can, you know, in most seats, reliably reelect conservatives, but we had some had some change. And I know you, you talked about that, and you must you talked about that in a previous podcast. But um, municipally, it it does feel low key. It's and it's kind of funny that way because we have open mayoral elections in quite a few major cities in the province: in Calgary, in Edmonton, in Lethbridge, in Grand Prairie, in Red Deer, in Fort McMurray. 
So you'd think there would be more attention, um, but it does feel like it does feel like a low key municipal election, just despite that, despite everything else that's going on in, in this election. Uh, well, let's talk about two of the biggest uh, municipal races. So Edmonton and Calgary. Um, and as you said, both cases, you know, the outgoing mayors are not running for re-election. Uh, let's start with Edmonton. Uh, how's that race shaping up? I saw a poll there was uh, out today showing Amarjeet Sohi who had a pretty big lead over the other contestants. But who are the main contenders here in this race? Yeah, you're right. Leger released a poll this morning um, through Post Media that uh, that uh, that that kind of both gave a poll, <laughs> gave some results. Um, the, I mean, the main contenders in in Edmonton's municipal election. I mean, Amarjeet Sohi. Uh, former city councillor, former federal cabinet minister. Um, he's been the, I think, the clear front runner in the polls uh, that have been released uh, released show that. Um, challenging so he are Mike Nickel, uh, who's a city councillor, who this is actually his third time running for mayor. He's kind of been a perennial candidate um, going back since the night, going back to the 1990s. Um, and he served a couple terms on council. Um, interestingly, his first term he served on council, um, he was defeated in re-election by a young up-and-comer rookie candidate named Don Iveson, who's now the outgoing mayor. Uh, so Nichols running to uh, succeed uh, Don Iveson. The other candidates being who have kind of find, found themselves in third or fourth place are former city councillor Michael Oshry uh, and uh, and former city councillor Kim Crishell, who've both come back to uh, to run in the mayoral election. But it looks like, I mean, the races between Sohi and Nickel, and you know, polls suggest Sohi has uh, has a considerable lead. Um, and politically, it's kind of, it kind of looks like so he is more is the more progressive candidate. Um, he's an advocate for pub, more public transit for the expansion of the LRT system. Um, he's a former liberal member of parliament. So he kind of he sits more on the, on the progressive side uh, of the of the political environment here in Edmonton. And Mike Nickel is definitely um, more of a populist conservative. Uh, kind of, he's kind of the grumpy voice on city council, if, if you could, uh, if you could describe, if I, I would describe him like that. Um, usually, if there's a if there's a twelve to one vote, Mike Nickel is usually the one, uh, the kind of dissenter, and that's kind of been his brand in politics since he uh, since he uh, started getting involved in municipal politics in the in the 1990s. So it, it, it's going to be interesting to see. It looks like so he has a lead, but um, you know there's still 20 percent uh, who are undecided according according to the recent poll. So we'll see. Uh, why is it that there isn't a, um, you know, a front running conservative candidate, uh, you know, a small C conservative candidate in Edmonton, considering that while, you know, the liberals in the NDP are more competitive in Edmonton, uh, both provincially and, and federally, why is there not a, you know, a strong conservative candidate that's taking that 40% of the voters so that, you know, the conservatives can reliably get in Edmonton at the very least? Well, I, I mean, I think there are there are two small C conservative candidates running, but they're they're the third and fourth place candidates that I mentioned, uh, Kim Cashel and, and Michael Oshry. Um, it's it is interesting. I mean, municipal politics in Edmonton. Um, I mean, it tends to uh, things tend to cut across party lines, and I don't necessarily think that Mike Nichols' style um, of politics, uh, his more more aggressive style of politics, appeal. I don't think that appeals to a lot of the more mainstream conservatives in in this city. So I think you'll see a lot of people. I mean, either voting for, you know, a lot of small C conservatives who may have voted for, you know, for Kim Cushell or Michael Oshry if, if it looked like they'd been stronger contenders, but will probably vote for Sohi in order to, to block Mike Nickel from winning. There's really a feeling of, of Sohi is the only candidate who can block Mike Nickel. And that's kind of the narrative that's going on right now here in the city. Uh, let's move on to uh, Calgary. So Nahid Nenshi not running for re-election. You know, he's a mayor that I think Canadians around the country are probably pretty familiar with a lot more than maybe Don Iveson. But um, so he's not running again. And there was, again, another poll by Post Media showing a pretty close race. Uh, how's that race shaping up in Calgary? 
Well, I mean, it, it's uh, I think there are 28 or 27 candidates running for mayor, but it's uh, it's it seems like a clear race between uh, between Jyoti Gondek and Jeremy Farkas, who are the kind of the two leading candidates. Uh, uh, Jyoti Gondek, who's uh, carrying on Nahid Nenshi's legacy in terms of city building, smart cities, uh, and uh, and Jeremy Farkas, who comes from a more uh, more conservative background. He was used to work for the Manning Center uh, before he was elected to council, um, very much a kind of cut, cut the budget kind of kind of candidate. So it's, it's in terms, I think, in, I think for Calgarians, it's a, it's an, it's a question of, you know, do you want to continue the type of city building that's that Nahid Nenshi led for his, uh, I guess, 11 years as mayor, uh, or do you want to take a different, uh, you know, a different approach? And, and it is a race that could have some surprises. Uh, that poll we saw in Edmonton had so he had by a pretty comfortable margin, but it is a municipal level you know, election where the polls tend to have a bit more trouble. But in this uh, race, uh, Gondik and Farkas were only, I think, three points separating the two um, and not yeah. neither with the even uh, getting 30%. So there could be a bit of a surprise in Calgary in terms of the outcome, especially when we consider what happened last time when the polls were the polls that were published suggested that uh, Nahid Nenshi uh, was not going to win. Yeah, it, 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 I think it, it, you know, there, there could be some surprises. It's definitely a close race. And it's interesting because when you look back at when um, at the times, the elections when Calgary has, uh, has no incumbent mayor running and traditionally uh, in Calgary, uh, mayors don't get defeated, they, they retire. <laughs> um, uh, I'm thinking, thinking uh, 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 Dave Bronconnier, Al Dewar, Ralph Klein, they, they move on. Um, Usually, after the mayor decides not to run, there's kind of a, a big, uh, a big race, a big, uh, a big scattering of candidates who who want to, who want to uh, want to become mayor and enter the race. Um, and it's so it's not not uncommon to have a candidate win with uh, you know thirty some percent of the vote, which I think is what we saw with uh, with Dave Bronconier back in the in the two thousands when uh, when there was uh, again another wild cast of characters who were who were running for mayor. Uh, so since there's so many uh, votes take, taking place in Alberta on Monday, let's let's move on to the one that I think is probably the most. Uh, well, no, we'll save that one for the end. But the <laughs> Senate nomination one, um, Alberta has Senate elections. Uh, the prime minister is under no obligation to appoint any senators that have been elected in these uh, Senate nomination uh, elections. And in the past, there have been people who have won who didn't end up becoming senators. What's going on with this one? Do people care about this race at all, considering that it seems low stakes and potentially the winner might not actually get anything? I, I don't think most Albertans are really, really even know who's running. Honestly, I think if you if you ask a random person on the street who is running for the Senate election, they might ask Senate election. What? And this is kind of a, a, a characteristic of our, of our Senate nominee elections here in this province, which is I mean, this is the fifth one we've had since 1989. Um, they tend to be low key affairs and and. I mean, when you're, you know, if you're a candidate running in a province-wide election in a province of 4.3 million people, you know, that's that, you know, it's going to be really hard for you to connect with, uh, you know, meaningfully connect connect with voters on on really any level. So, you know, we've seen candidates they're out door knocking, they're out going to events, you know, they post stuff on social media. But I'm not sure that that most Albertans really have any idea who's who's running in 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 the Senate election. I think it's. I mean, we do have some interesting candidates who are running. I mean, there are three candidates, 13 candidates in total, three who are endorsed by the Conservative Party of Canada, uh, three who are endorsed by the People's Party of Canada. And these are actually three People's Party candidates who filed their nomination papers to run in the Senate election. They hadn't even lost in the federal election yet before they before they filed their uh, their candidate, their, nom their papers to run in the Senate nominee, nominee election. And then there are seven other candidates, and some of them are quite interesting. Former finance minister Doug Horner is running. He was uh, deputy premier under, I believe, under, under Alison Redford. And he comes from a, a real like bona fide 
political dynasty here in this province. Um, he's the son of uh, Dr. Hugh Horner, who was a, a member of parliament, I think, under Diefenbaker, and then became Peter Lougheed's uh, deputy premier. Um, the, his grandfather was a senator from Saskatchewan. I think his three of his uncles were members of parliament, including one who who famously crossed the floor to to uh, to join um, uh, Pierre Trudeau's cabinet and become agriculture minister, only to be crushed in, in the next election, running running as a liberal in, in the Crowfoot riding. So, I mean, that, that, that that's that's interesting. We'll see, it'd be interesting to see how he does. He's running as an independent. And also another candidate I want to mention is Karina Pilling, um, who is the former mayor of Slave Lake, who led that uh, led that town through the uh, the devastating fires uh, about uh, about 10 years ago or so. Are there any candidates who, one, have a chance of winning and two, would actually be considered as a nominee by the Liberal government in Ottawa? Well, it's interesting. Uh, PLA and another candidate have uh, publicly stated that they've actually filed applications under the uh, under the Senate application process. So they filed under the process that the federal Liberals have set up, but they're also running in the Senate nominee election to, I don't know, get a Democratic mandate. But really, um, I mean, traditionally, it's the three conservative endorsed candidates who will win, and that's probably likely. And it's unlikely that any of them will be actually be appointed to the Senate. And I don't get the impression that that Prime Minister Trudeau is going to appoint anyone, any of these candidates, um, even if they win this this Senate nominee election. One one of the interesting things about Senate nominee elections, going back to 2012 when we had our last one, uh, was the number, the huge number of spoiled ballots. And I, it'll be interesting to see whether whether this with this Senate nominee actually election also sees a, a huge number of, of spoiled ballots. And, and part of that could be a reflection on Halliburton's feel about uh, about the uh, the current provincial government, I think, because it's interesting because Premier Kenny introduced reintroduced the Senate nominee elections after the legislation had expired when Rachel Notley was premier, when the NDP were government. Um, but the the UCP has stayed far away from the Senate nominee elections because I think Premier Kenny's I mean, his popularity and according to recent polls, is down at 22%. He's very much a toxic political figure right now. So everybody's kind of staying away from them, even though, you know, many of these candidates would have had affiliations with Premier Kenny before. Uh, speaking of, of elections that might not, or votes that might not have any actual practical outcomes or uh, consequences, uh, there's two referendums. One of them will have one on daylight savings time, and however mm -hmm. Alberta's vote on that is going to be binding. I, on why that is happening, you can maybe explain, but I think the one that uh, people outside of Alberta uh, have been hearing a lot about is the one on equalization, which mm -hmm. is asking Albertans whether that should be removed from the constitution. And if Albertans say yes, it's not clear that that's actually going to produce anything whatsoever. Yeah, it probably, <laughs> as you said, the, the first of all, the daylight savings time referendum, this is kind of a perennial issue in Alberta. People hate changing their clocks twice a year. <laughs> we change our clocks from mountain standard time to daylight savings time um, uh, every March in November. Uh, and and it's people do not like it. Uh, but what the, what what's being offered on this on this uh, in this binding province-wide referendum is a choice between Albertans keeping the system as it is now with the time changes or going permanently to daylight savings time. And there's been almost no discussion about this. I mean, it's kind of something that Albertans complain about twice a year. But there's been almost no discussion about why the government chose the current system, which everybody hates, or the you know or the permanent daylight savings time and there's been one professor from the university of calgary dr mark antel who's uh, kind of a, an expert in circadian rhythms and he's basically the only person who's voiced any kind of opinion on this basically saying no don't do this uh, you know the sun will rise at like 9 30 a.m in the winter and everybody's going to hate it and it's going to be bad for people's health and mental health and and it's going to be dangerous for people who are driving and kids who are walking to school um but aside from that there's been almost no discussion about it so it's kind of i mean it's 
it's bizarre why, why they would put a binding referendum and almost offer the government op would almost offer no opinion on it in terms of creating no air narrative or no argument. It's kind of a strange kind of side thing, uh, side election that's happening, but it's going to be binding. And I mean, I suspect I would predict that it's that uh, that Albertans are going to vote to get rid of the time change, the equalization referendum. I mean, this is a this is something that actually interestingly came up originated from the uh, the idea of having an uh, equalization referendum originated in the United Conservative Party leadership race in 2016, 2017. And this was, was actually an idea that was originally proposed by Brian Jean, who, as, as anybody who pays attention to Alberta politics will know, Jason Kenney defeated in the, in the UCP leadership race. And then Kenney kind of took that policy as his own. Equalization is kind of a, a, a perennial regional grievance that Albertans have. Um, there's an idea that's promoted by, I would say, a lot of conservative groups in this province uh, and conservative politicians in this province that Alberta is treated unfair because we pay more into equalization and provinces like Quebec, you know, benefit from equalization. Now, that's not exactly how the equalization system works. The system works because Albertans pay their ta federal taxes to the federal government it's but 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 and then the money is redistributed through the federal government. Um, but the way it's the way that's promoted in Alberta is that it's as if the federal, the provincial government writes a giant check to the federal government, and then the federal government gives it to Quebec. And that's really, it's really a, a kind of a regional grievance, political grievance thing that uh, that that uh, that's been around in Alberta politics for, for some time. Now, as you mentioned, it's non-binding, so the referendum asks Albertans whether they want to remove Section thirty-six two from the constitution. That's the the, the section of the constitution that that enshrines uh, uh, the equalization program, equalization. It's non-binding and there's a lot of argument about whether this will give Alberta a good, put Alberta in a good bargaining position as Premier Kenny has said, and that's kind of his, his, uh, his talking point around it. Now, the, the question is not whether to amend the formula or reform the equalization system. The question is whether Albertans want to fully remove it from the constitution. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know, I, I don't expect that most other provinces or the federal government will really be particularly interested in talking, uh, talking to Alberta about this. Um, I mean, you know, I think there's a lot of room for debate around equalization and what that formula looks like. Um, but the way the provincial government has done it, it's, it's really they're using a big hammer um, to try to just and again, this is, as I said before, this is all about the politics of, of regional grievance, but it's likely to pass because it's a it's, you know, a generally an unpopular, unpopular program in Alberta. Um, so we'll see how that we'll see how that goes. And we'll see. I mean, a lot of this will depend on what happens will depend on the future Premier Kenny's leadership and whether he's able to whether he will be Premier a year from now. I mean, if 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 he's not Premier, the next leader of the UCP or the next Premier uh, may have no interest in pursuing this. And it may have just been a, a bit, bit of a vanity project. What was the what was the impetus behind putting forward this referendum? Because uh, as you mentioned, Kenny is himself is recognized it won't have any um, practical outcome, it's going to be used as leverage, though I'm not sure what the, you know, the or else aspect of the leverage is. Quebec always had the or else will leave the country. I'm not sure that um, Alberta has the same kind of leverage here, but what is the, what is the, what was the idea behind putting this forward? Why bother with this, with this referendum? Well, it came, I mean, as I mentioned before, it came, uh, it came through from the UCP leadership race, but it was also something that was recommended from the Fair Deal panel, which was this group that, uh, this panel that Premier Kenny convened of a number of MLAs, Preston Manning was on it, um, one of Peter Lougheed's sons was on it, and it kind of traveled the province. This was right after the 2019 federal election, where there was kind of a, 
attention was given to the Wexit groups and the Alberta separatist groups who were unhappy with the, with the Liberals being re-elected in, in Ottawa. So this, this panel went around the province and, and held town halls and, you know, they ended up being a, really a lot of venting sessions for people who were frustrated with the federal government. And then they came out with a number of recommendations, and this was included in the report, was to hold a, hold a, a referendum on, on equalization, and that was something that the, the panel said that they'd heard from Albertans. Um, I don't know what the what else is, what's next, because, I mean, as we've seen, we saw in the, in the provincial election, we saw in the recent federal election, um, the separatist parties get around 1% of the vote. This is not a mainstream, there's no appetite um, even if, even when Albertans, you know, at, at, at their, are, are their most angry at, at the federal liberals and are most angry at Justin Trudeau, uh, there is no real appetite for, uh, for separatism for Alberta, Alberta to leave, to leave Canada. So I don't, I, you know, and I don't think that, that uh, we'd see a, uh, a mainstream conservative party or really a mainstream any party in this province really advocate for, uh, for separatism. There's always going to be, Alberta has kind of a cottage industry of, kind of fringe right-wing separatist parties. We always have like three or four separatist parties and there's always like three or four others that are being organized at any given time, but, but they never seem to gain, gain any traction in, uh, in provincial or federal elections. You know, every now, every now and then they kind of burst up. I mean, we have the one example that everybody points back at was the 1982 by-election in Olds, I think it was Olds Didsbury, where, where Gordon Kessler and the Western Canada concept won, won a by-election and then was absolutely crushed in the, in the, in the provincial election that was held like six months later. Um, but we've never, ever seen anything like that since. So alienation exists. I think, you know, a lot of Albertans are, are perpetually unhappy with Ottawa and for a lot, you know, some, some of the reasons are, are political and some of the reasons are, you know, legitimate. Um, some of them are partisan, but I can't see this going any further, at least not, not anytime in the future, especially yeah. with the state of the, of the United Conservative Party right now. Yeah, well, I think that's going to be uh, the focus uh, for people outside of Alberta and inside Alberta for a while to see what's going to happen with Jason Kenney. But, you know, those are some some votes that, you know, the municipal level elections, they don't often get a lot of attention, but obviously it impacts people's lives a lot. And, you know, when you mentioned it and you explained it, the daylight savings referendum actually feels like it could be the one that actually impacts people the most in yeah. their day to day, <laughs> just because of what time they'll be waking up in the morning. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, it's, uh, I mean, you know, it, it, we're, we're pretty far north here in Alberta, and, and there's a lot of communities that are further far north. I mean, Grand Prairie, Fort McMurray, Peace River, um, you know, if the sun isn't rising till 1030 a.m. in the winter, I mean, that's pretty brutal. Um, you know, that's a, that's, a, that's a late morning. That's, that's a, lot of, a lot of early morning driving in the dark. Well, <laughs> thanks for shedding some light on the, uh, the, <laughs> the votes that's happening in Alberta, Dave. I really appreciate you taking some time to speak with me today. Thanks so much, Eric. This has been fun. Hey, I'm Brett Chang. And I'm Jay Rosenthal. And we're here to tell you about Canada's top. And only. And only daily business news podcast. It's called The Peak Daily. And every morning we get you up to speed on the need to know Canadian and global business stories. And we do it without all the jargon that can make business news a little. A little dull. Dull, exactly. And did you mention we do it all in just seven minutes? Six minutes if we fast forward through all of your dad jokes. Well, I prefer to call them rad jokes, Brett. See what I mean? Come for the daily business news, stay for the dad jokes. Join us and thousands of Peak Pals every morning to start your day smarter. Find the Peak Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. All right, for the poll of the week, I'm looking at an Angus Reid Institute survey. This was done on September 29th to October 3rd, and it surveyed 5,011 people online. 
This poll looked at the approval ratings of every premier, except in Prince Edward Island, because Angus Reid Institute doesn't have a big enough panel or sample size to report on numbers there. There were four premiers who were doing quite well in the poll. So this was Tim Houston in Nova Scotia, Andrew Fury in Newfoundland and Labrador, John Horgan in British Columbia, and Francois Legault in Quebec. All of them had approval ratings of around 55 or 56 percent and had a net approval rating of anywhere from 16, 18, 19 points, which was the case for Fury, Horgan, and Legault, or 29 points for Tim Houston, who is the newcomer on the block and comes out of this with the best numbers in the country. There was some movement, though. We did see uh, drops in support in the approval ratings for John Horgan, for Francois Legault, for Andrew Fury. But Fury is still above where he was after that spring election where it was postponed and delayed and in-person voting was canceled because of COVID. And Francois Legault, his numbers have come down, but he's still at more or less where he was before the pandemic. So it looks like for some of these leaders... They are returning to where they were before the pandemic boosted them because of a rally around the flag effect. The four premiers at the bottom were Scott Moe, Saskatchewan. He actually dropped quite a bit. That's uh, one of the big movements. He was actually the one with the most movement. The biggest decrease in support, his uh, approval ratings have dropped by um, just about 18 points since June. And this is as the province is really going through another outbreak of COVID-19. Blaine Higgs in New Brunswick, his numbers also came down. His approval rating now is only 38%. Again, another province with an outbreak of COVID-19. And Jason Kenney, his approval rating is now just 22%. 76% of Albertans uh, now disapprove of the Premier. If we go back to when Alison Redford resigned as Alberta Premier in 2014, the last Angus Reid survey before her resignation had her approval rating at 23%. So for Jason Kenney to be at 22%, might be a bit of a problem. Uh, Doug Ford was also at the bottom of the list. He has an approval rating of 36%, but what's problematic for him is his disapproval rating is 61%. Uh, So he has a minus 25 net rating. The only person who was worse was Jason Kenney. But the good news for Doug Ford, he was the only premier who had an increase in his approval rating, though it was just a single point. Now, the only premiers who would see these numbers and um, think about their immediate future would be, I would think, Francois Legault and Doug Ford, who have elections next year. Neither of these numbers are really that bad for them. Francois Legault, of course, 56% approval rating. Not really much of a concern about being reelected. For Doug Ford, 36% approval is more or less where he was during the 2018 provincial election. So he's returning to his normal levels of approval. Uh, But what might be more of a problem for him is that his disapproval rating at 61% is higher than it was back in 2018. Uh, So while the number of people who like him hasn't really changed, the number of people who don't, that has increased. And if one of the opposition parties can galvanize that support, then they have a chance of defeating Ford. But Jason Kenney, he doesn't actually face the electorate until 2023. But I think it's a pretty open question whether he can actually hold on to his own leadership of the United Conservative Party for that long. Okay, getting to the questions and answers, the first one here came uh, from Twitter. They all came from Twitter. Jack Mason, with such a minuscule change in the seat count, what do you think the enduring legacy or takeaway from election 44 will be? You know, I think that it's too early to say. I know that's a bit of a cop-out, but it really all depends on what's going to happen next. Because there was no real shift, no real consequence, let's say, from this election. It just means this government's going to continue. It's still in a minority government. It might only get another two years, whatever. 
just as long as it would have had if there hadn't have been an election and the government was managing to survive for that long. We just really don't know what the legacy will be. What will Justin Trudeau do with these next few years? Will he actually stay on as prime minister until the next election? What will happen to Aaron O'Toole? Uh, will he be able to hold on as conservative leader? And what happens to, let's say, the People's Party? Is it going to be a blip? Or is, it, is their performance something that's going to really mark the beginning of a party that is going to stick around for a long time? So we really don't know, uh, because it will really depend on all of these things. If Trudeau does stay until the next election, then I think his legacy will be what he did in these next few years and what happens in the next election. If he doesn't stay, then the legacy of this election will be that it was the last one for Justin Trudeau and it ushered in whoever his replacement will be. And the same thing goes for Aaron O'Toole. If he stays on, then I think his story will really be what happens next time. But if he doesn't, then the story will be what his replacement does and how this election forced this change. So it is too early to say. We'll have to wait and see. Okay, next I got one from uh, Spooky Dagger, uh, who's at G. Hurst. Uh, what do you think the likelihood of a snap election being called between now and 2025? 2025 being the next fixed election date in Canada. Let's think about it historically. Historically, the likelihood of a minority government lasting for four years is low. It hasn't happened very often, and the only time it's happened at the federal level was back in 1921 to 1925. Uh, when the Liberals were able to govern with the support of the Progressives. And it's only happened a handful of times at the provincial level. So just going by those measures, you would say the likelihood of a snap election between now and 2025 should be high. Uh, But I'm not sure if this current context makes it more likely than it would be otherwise. I think it makes it a lot less likely because I doubt the Liberals will risk pulling the plug again. I think that they will not want to be under attack for another early election. If they change leaders, then maybe that changes the dynamic. But I think that takes the liberals off of the table in terms of calling an early election. And that means that the opposition parties have to combine to defeat the government. It's easy to get one or two parties to vote non-confidence. It's hard to make get all three to do it because one of them will always, almost always, uh, chicken out and, you know, fold. And it becomes a game of brinksmanship where the other opposition parties are forcing that third party to compromise. Michael Ignatieff did it for a long time, and it was when he decided that, you know, he had had enough uh, that we were really on track for that election in 2011. So I think that it'll depend on the next few years and the dynamics in the House. I think that the Liberals, if they can get away with it, they will try to hold on for the next four years rather than risk an early call. Um, But you know what? Three years, let's say, is a long time, and maybe the political landscape is so different by then that Everybody's forgotten about this early election in 2021. Okay, this question from Melon Seeds, I really liked because it it got me thinking about it. And when I first read the question, I thought that this was going to be a really kind of fascinating way to think about, you know, what could happen in federal politics. But in the end, uh, I came up with not a long list. The question was, do any of the current premiers or provincial party leaders have a possible future as federal party leaders? Okay, first off, it's very rare for... Uh, a premier to have success at the federal level. We haven't had a prime minister who won an election at the provincial level who, you know, subsequently became prime minister. There was a few uh, who uh, were appointed, like John Thompson or Charles Tupper, who, you know, had that role in the past. But uh, we haven't seen someone who won as a premier, 
resigned that job or lost it and then won and become became prime minister. We have had a few premiers try. Most of them have been conservatives. John Bracken, he was a premier in Manitoba. He was the first leader of the progressive conservatives and uh, he failed to win the election in 1945. There's George Drew, who was a uh, Ontario premier in the 1940s, and he ran for the PCs and failed to dislodge Louis Saint Laurent in 1949 and in 1953. There was Robert Stanfield, of course, who was a premier of Nova Scotia for a long time, and he was the PC leader during the uh, 1960s to 1970s and wasn't able to defeat Pierre Trudeau. And of course, there's also Tommy Douglas, who was a Saskatchewan premier, famously the first NDP government in Canada, the first social democratic or socialist government in North America. And he, of course, ran the NDP. He was their first leader. So there's a a short list of people who've had success at the provincial level becoming federal leaders and an even shorter list, a non-existent list of those who became prime minister. You know, if you're looking at the premiers across country, well, let's go across the country. John Horgan. You know, he would make a pretty good NDP leader, and he could probably win an NDP leadership race. There's lots of NDP uh, members in British Columbia, but would he want that job? Being the premier of BC is a big job. It's, you know, the fourth biggest job in the country after being the prime minister and the premiers of Ontario and Quebec. Would leading the federal NDP be a, a logical step for John Horgan? I don't think so. In uh, Alberta, Jason Kenney, I mean, his leadership and hold of the Alberta government is in question. So while I wouldn't put past the idea that he might make a run for federal leadership, uh, I think his future is looking not particularly bright. I think Scott Moe, not really um, a federal kind of figure. Uh, I'd have difficulty imagining him running the federal conservatives. We don't know who the next premier of Manitoba will be. Uh, Doug Ford. You know, I would not rule him out as someone who would run for the federal leadership of the Conservative Party. If there was one premier who would give it a try, I would say it would be him. Would he actually do it? Would he win? Open questions. François Legault, no chance. What party would he run for? And then when you get to the Atlantic provinces, you know, Andrew Fury, not really much of a base there for him to try to run for the liberal leadership. Blaine Higgs, I think he's probably going to end his political career as Premier of New Brunswick. Dennis King and P.I., you know, not exactly a a leader who could win a federal leadership race for the Conservative Party. And Tim Houston in Nova Scotia, well, let's wait and see. Um, You know, he he is certainly the darling of the the, uh, blue movement in Canada right now because he just won an election. We'll see how he goes. Maybe who knows? Uh, Someone could tell me how his French is. When we're talking about party leaders... There's a very short list of party leaders right now that are in the opposition that I would say have the caliber to become federal leaders. And most of them, you know, if you're looking across the country, it's not a lot of good opposition leaders right now, but there are a couple. But it's a short list of really leading lights, I would say, at the provincial level in terms of party leaders who could rise to uh, federal leadership. You know, you'd look at someone like Rachel Notley in Alberta. You know, she would be, I would think, a fantastic leader for the federal NDP. Um, I think she's been able to bridge that gap between progressive left and um, maybe the more pragmatic center. But I just don't see her, one, wanting to run for the federal NDP, and two, winning it. Uh, I don't think that the NDP, the membership of that party, is very open to a, a party leader who supports uh, pipelines in Alberta. 
And, uh, you know, I think that's, that's a bit of a shame because Rachel Notley is probably one of the most effective party leaders in the country right now. I could imagine someone like Wab Canoe in Manitoba, who's the leader of the NDP there. He could be an interesting candidate for the federal NDP, um, be the first Indigenous person to lead a uh, major federal party. Uh, you know, that could be something that could work out. But if he ends up winning the next election in Manitoba, you know, being the premier of a province is a pretty good job. And the only other person I could think of was Mike Schreiner in Ontario, the leader of the Green Party. You know, he seems very focused on Ontario. Uh, but having an experienced leader uh, who seems to have been not really involved in any of the turmoil of the party uh, at the federal level, you know, that could be pretty helpful for them. Of course, he's going to be obviously focused on next spring's Ontario provincial election. So uh, that's probably not happening. But yeah, the list of party leaders at the provincial level that can make the jump to federal office, I find it looks pretty slim, pretty small. The farm system is not really working out. This week on the Every Election Project, my look at every election in Canada's history, we're going back over a century to the Ontario provincial election held on October 20th, 1919, 102 years ago this week. Nearly a year after the end of the First World War, Ontario was in its 14th year of conservative government. Most of it had been under James Whitney, who died in office in 1914 shortly after the war had begun. Replacing him was William Hurst, who was still leading the Conservatives five years later. The opposition at the time was formed by the Liberals under Hartley Dewart. They had been struggling to make headway against the Conservatives since their defeat in 1905, which had ended more than three decades of Liberal rule in Ontario. But the real opposition to the Conservatives turned out to be a completely new political movement that was just starting to gain momentum across the country. The war had been politically difficult for federal Conservatives. Though Robert Borden led his party to a huge victory in the 1917 federal election, the debate over conscription split the country between Anglophones and Francophones, but it also had an impact on farmers, who were promised by the Conservative government that their sons would not be conscripted to fight in European battlefields. When the Borden government went back on that pledge, the Ontario Conservative support in rural areas became vulnerable. This presented an opportunity for the United Farmers of Ontario. This group had started a few years earlier as a union of different farmer groups and officially entered politics in 1918, making a splash by winning a by-election. The UFO was part of a broader movement of farmer, labor, or progressive parties getting off the ground throughout Canada in the wake of the First World War. The UFO had lots of populist reformist elements to its platform, like referendums and proportional representation. It was about breaking the old party system and giving a bigger voice to farmers. Like some of the other farmer movements in Canada, its leader, J.J. Morrison, didn't want to see the party form a government, but rather represent agricultural interests in the legislature. Another new player on the field was Labour. With its attacks on conscription, government corruption, and the deeply entrenched two-party political system, Labour was a natural ally for the UFO, and 10 candidates ran on a dual farmer-Labour ticket in 1919. This was the first election in which women could vote in Ontario, and when the results were in, the UFO emerged with the most seats, to the surprise of everybody. They won 44, and combined with Labour and other allies, had 58 seats in the 111-seat assembly. These came primarily in the rural areas of southern Ontario, while Labour won in places like the North and in Hamilton. The Liberals picked up three seats to end up with 27, while the Conservatives were reduced by 59 seats to just 24, with only four of ten cabinet ministers being re-elected. The UFO and its allies took about 34% of the vote, roughly even with the Conservatives, but that was a drop of nearly 20 points for the outgoing government. The Liberals were not spared and also dropped about 12 points in the province-wide vote, as the UFO took from both of the old parties. 
But who had formed the government? Morrison was not the leader of the UFO as a political party, and he didn't want to form a government, believing the UFO could only represent agricultural interests, not make decisions for a whole province. So the job instead went to E.C. Drury, the secretary-treasurer of the UFO, who wasn't even a candidate in the election. Drury would serve as premier for the next four years, bringing in progressive social and labor legislation and improving Ontario's infrastructure. But the UFO, like other farmer parties in Canada, was inherently unstable. And when Drury tried to push his policy of so-called broadening out, he wanted to broaden out the base beyond farmers, the UFO organization didn't support him. He would lose the next election in 1923, and the Conservatives would return to office. And that'll be it for the podcast this week. As always, please check out therit.ca for all my latest analyses and consider subscribing to get access to all the content if you aren't already a subscriber. If you are, thanks for your ongoing support. Also, check out my YouTube channel. I'm starting to post some videos there. I had one on the 1987 New Brunswick election and the chat that I had with Dave Cornway earlier on in the podcast. If you want to watch it, you can watch it on YouTube as well. Okay, so have a great weekend and I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening.